Big Fluff. Hobo Radio, the official podcast of HoboTrashCan.com. You can share your thoughts on the show anytime by emailing Joel at Murphy's Law at HoboTrashCan.com. Hey guys, this is John Hill. You're listening to Hobo Radio. I hope you guys have Hobo Stab insurance. And now, your host miniature dog enthusiast, Joel Murphy. Hello again. I'm Joel Murphy. This is Hobo Radio. And today's show is all about Mark Felt. Now, if that name is not immediately clicking in your mind, you know, it might take a second. Mark Felt is the FBI agent who was eventually revealed to have been deep throat during the Watergate scandal. He, he's the person who, you know, ended up leaking to the press the vital information that sort of broke the story wide open. And what's really fascinating about Mark Felt is that his identity as Deep Throat was concealed until 2005. And that, you know, as he was getting in the later years of his life, he gave an interview with Vanity Fair and he came out and he uh, confirmed that he had in, indeed been Deep Throat. And uh, he, Mark Felt, actually wrote a book. And so writer, director Peter Landsman took that material and actually has made a new film, which is now coming out in Los Angeles and New York. The day I'm releasing this today, September 29th. And so I was invited to the official Los Angeles press day for this film. It was uh, like a small group of reporters. Uh, we got invited out and uh, were there to chat with both uh, the star of this film, Liam Neeson, and with writer-director Peter Landsman. And so that is what you're going to hear today. Uh, you're going to hear those chats. They're kind of done press conference style. So uh, it's 20 minutes with Liam Neeson and then 20 minutes with Peter Landsman. And it's me and other reporters uh, just asking some questions about the film and uh, having a delightful chat. And I thought that it would just be nice for you guys to hear the whole thing. You know, if you listen closely, you can you can hear me asking questions. But, you know, everybody there asked good questions. And I, I think they were both really good chats. And this is a really cool film. I, you know, they sent me a, a screening link for it. I, I watched it before the press day, and I think it's it's a really well told story, and uh, it's a you know angle on Watergate that we haven't heard. You know, we we don't really know about this man who you know did this huge thing that that sort of altered the course of history. 
And what I like about the film and what I find interesting, and, and you'll hear that Liam Neeson actually talks a bit about, you know, some of this was just budget constraints or realities of, of what they were working with, but it, it's a very insular film. It's very narrowly focused on this man, Mark Felt. And uh, I think you really get a glimpse of him and his life at the time and what he went through to be the man to you know, point the finger at the Nixon White House and, and help justice to be served. And it it's a really worthy film that that I would recommend people check out. I think it's well done. I think Liam Neeson is brilliant in it, unsurprisingly. And uh, so, yeah, I'd go ahead, listen to these chats. There's nothing... I mean, it sounds silly to say that nothing's going to be spoiled. I, I think, you know... I, there is some stuff in the film that you you probably don't know about Mark Felt specifically, but obviously, you know, I don't think we need to do spoiler alerts for uh, Watergate, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, the the chats are sort of like there's nothing you know too deep that's going to give away anything in the film, and I, I think you'll enjoy them. And I think if this film wasn't on your radar, this will maybe get you excited for it because uh, it, it's really well done and really deserving of your time. So without further ado, here are the interviews with Liam Neeson and Peter Landsman. It's funny, you know, over the years seeing how these change <laughs> as technology evolves, you know? It used to be big things. Now it's like these little... The little tiny, the tiny and the better. Unbelievable, yeah. Okay, everyone, raise your hand, and I'll point at you one at a time, and I just want you to speak up, because obviously we don't have a mic. Hi, Mr. Neeson. So, there's the books by uh, Mark Felt and John Connor, there's the script by Peter, and of course there are previous on-screen performances like Hal Holbrook and um, you know, all the President's Men. So, how do you approach uh, to form, to capture the essence of this character, Mark Felt? Well, for a start, I knew very, very little about Watergate. Um, I was brought up in the north of Ireland. And in 71, 72, we were going through our own hellish troubles, political upheaval. So I was, I was very aware of Watergate on the periphery of my imagination. We had two TV channels, BBC and ITV. And uh, after the local news, uh, I remember seeing images of horrible images of the Vietnam War coming through and, and also something about Watergate, not quite knowing what it was. But uh, So when I, uh, Peter Landsman approached me to be in this, it was, a, it was a whole new learning curve for me and I was staggered just at, at just how immense Watergate was, you know, yeah. just how extraordinary it was. And, and they, this extraordinary work that the FBI did for a start, and these two neophyte journalists, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, gradually uncovering this uh, expose of this criminality of the highest order, you know. Is that answering your question? I'm not sure if it did. So how do you capture the essence of Markville? Oh, I don't know if I, I mean, I, you know, there's, uh, there's stuff written about him, but actually there's very little about him, you know. Um, I, I employed a research assistant. 
there's stuff now on YouTube. It's amazing. You know, you, you punch in Watergate and there's a whole thing of interviews with Gordon Liddy, with, with E. Howard Hunt, and then suddenly there's something with Mark Felt. So it's, there's, um, so I relied on that stuff a lot, you know? Thank you. Um, since not many people know what Mark Felt looks like or sounded like or anything like that, and really his story didn't come out until much later because people speculated for years sure. who Deep Throat was, um, did you feel less a concern about his appearance, his voice, um, than you did about capturing who this man was and all the personal crises he was going through uh, during this time when, when all this was happening? Well, at the end of the day, I, I wanted to present what Peter Landisman had written, you know, that character. And yes, there's any amount of research to do as I talked about, but um, there was very, very little known about uh, Mark's relationship with his wife, with his daughter, whom he was devoted to, that she had run off to join a commune. And interestingly enough, Bob Woodward knew nothing of that aspect of his friend. And um, so it just shows you how much Mark Felt was able to compartmentalize his life. And he was trained to do that, of course, by Hoover and 30 years in the FBI. That's what they do, you know. Um, any interviews I saw with him, it was, you thought you could see the man, but there was always a screen there, you know. And I, as an actor, I find that interesting to. You know, a lot, there's lots of scenes of walking down corridors and talking on telephones and talking to other guys in suits. And, you know, it's, it's presenting that and trying to keep an audience interested at the same time, you know. These are bureaucrats, you know. So um, th th we shot a lot more stuff with Diane, who played my wife, a lot more stuff. And there's, listen, that may be on the DVD, director's cut, I don't know, I, I feel saddened a little that we've lost some of that stuff for audiences um, but um, because as devoted he, as he was to the FBI he was totally devoted to her too you know and she committed suicide after the whole stress and she shot herself with his service revolver we don't put it we don't put it on the the last credits you know the legend of the last but she was under enormous strain, you know. Very, very sad, you know. So you said that you weren't as familiar with Watergate at the time growing up where you did. Uh, you've been in the States uh, on and off for many years doing movies in Hollywood and for Hollywood. So did revisiting this time give you any new understanding uh, of America through our history? Absolutely it did, yeah. Um, and I did watch all the presidents, mainly. In fact, I watched it twice. And it's, I don't know if you've seen it recently. It's brilliant. It's a great American work of art. Definitely is one of the great American films, you know. And uh, I don't know, I've just remembered, I don't know if you remember the, the first 18 seconds of that film. Like, the curtains open. And you think you're looking at a white screen. And it's actually a close-up of a piece of paper and a typewriter. And after 18 seconds, this key comes up and hits it. And you're like, it's like a gunshot, you know? Fantastic. Um, right, I didn't answer your question at all. Um, 
I'm sorry, was I, was I, did I become more aware of Watergate from living in the States? Is that what you? Uh, no, did revisiting this history give you a, a different perspective on the history? Yeah, I, I guess because um, I was, uh, my research just made me just aware of the scale of it, you know, and, and how it reinforced in me, and it's the same for growing up in outside Belfast back home, you know, you, you're, you don't know who to believe anymore. You've been lied to, and there's smoke and mirrors all the time of these elected leaders that claim to be representing us. Um, and they have to be held accountable, especially when they break the law, and when they think they're above the law, as Richard Nixon felt, because he was president, and whatever he said, was was uh, above the law, and of course it's not, you know. Um, so, were you able to, to speak with Mark's daughter, or get it, or speak with anyone who knew him? Like, was there something about this man that sort of surprised you? Uh, Peter Landsman did. He, when Felt gave his interview to Vanity Fair in two thousand five. That stoked Peter's interest in the man, and he went out to see him. Now, I think then he was certainly had some dementia. Uh, he was in his early 90s, you know. And, uh, but, uh, but Peter was able to talk about him a lot. Diane went and stayed with Joan, uh, Mark's uh, daughter for two or three days and learned quite a lot. So I was I was constantly asking Diane for information, you know, and Peter, but certainly Diane, yeah. Was there something about him that surprised you? Because he was such a bureaucrat, you know. Was there yes, I guess I he. Um, well, his devotion just to his wife and his daughter, you know. And as I say, this compartmentalization he was able to do, and his colleagues were able to do, you know. Uh, he was just very, very proud of what he did. And he was very proud of the Hoover legacy, uh, of what Hoover stood for. And, um, you know, the FBI, the CIA get attacked all the time. Uh, for nefarious deeds, and God knows I'm sure they do. But I'd like to think ultimately they are keeping us safe, you know, when everything's all added up. Certainly the FBI, you know. As I watched the film and followed your character, it occurred to me that it must be very difficult to play someone who is so heroic. Um, you could make the argument that in the end he's a pure hero or that he's um, even almost a saint, almost a martyr at that, for giving his life and being uh, in the end prosecuted and so on. Uh, in a way he comes across as that. Um, was it difficult to play someone who was so heroic? Um, where did you find the conflict? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I hear what you're saying. I'm kind of saddened by that a little bit because I, I, I was, didn't want to play that 100%, you know? Um, 
you know, he was a very ambitious guy, and I don't think the ambition comes out as much in the script of, of what the guy was like, you know? Um, G. Gordon Liddy called him, a, and he was known in the FBI as a torpedo, meaning he would go through anything in any situation to advance himself. That's maybe a little bit harsh, but, you know, there's no smoke without fire, you know? Um, I think he was very, very hurt that he was overlooked when Hoover died to be the head of the FBI. I think that really didn't crush him, but it, he, he, he deeply hurt him. And uh, um, so I, I, I didn't set out to play an absolute black and white hero, you know? Um, you know, the, the film's heavily edited. There's a lot of stuff that may be on the director's cut. And I'm not saying that behind Peter's back at all. There's, uh, you know, in any film, stuff has to be cut out. But uh, I was surprised, that, uh, especially a lot of stuff with Diane and myself, that, that explains a little bit more about his situation and the stress they were, they were under for a long time, you know. That um, goes somewhat to showing a lot more of the private man, you know, than the bureaucrat and the, the hero, you know. Um, what I like this film you are playing is the, uh, how portrayed the, uh, the uh, wife and husband relationship and also fatherhood. Um, how do you relate it, the, uh, especially the fatherhood? Um, the, uh, playing this character, he's really tough and uh, uh, everywhere, but it's a uh, you know, couple moments in this film. Uh, that we can see his pain as a father, so it's very, very powerful moment to see this film. Oh, good, good. Yeah, like I say, these, you know, they, when these guys are in their office, you know, they're, 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 they have a, a screen over themselves, you know? They, they have to keep... I think it's true of policemen, of uh, people in the military, of always have to keep their emotions in check because otherwise they wouldn't be able to do their job, you know? Fight in wars, arrest people, you know, spy on people, FBI, CIA stuff. It's A lot of it's very, very covert, you know? And I think, I think they've... They've been trained and learned sometimes at great cost to their family life to, to, to keep all this emotion in check, you know? But there's still beating hearts there, you know what I mean? They're still human beings. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope our film sort of shows a bit of both sides, you know? Um, yeah, as you said, Watergate is such a story, but the, the film itself has such an intimate scope. Like, it's really just focused on Mark Felt and, you know, like, Nixon, there's no actor playing Nixon. It's yes, yeah. Uh, so I was just curious your thoughts on that approach to telling the story of making it such an intimate, uh, just where we're really just following Mark Felt. Well, you know, you get down to budget, too, you know? <laughs> and it's, I, I would have loved to, has, has anybody seen the series Narcos? Yes. Isn't it amazing? So good. Season three. Yeah, I just finished it. It's really good. But what I what I did love was their their blending of uh, 
Pablo Escobar's, all the, all the documentary footage they have, sometimes horrible footage of beheadings and stuff, bleeding that into the fiction they were telling, you know. I would, in an ideal world and a bigger budget, I would have loved our film to have shown more of that, to show there was almost a civil war in America at that time, you know. Uh, you know, what was happening in Vietnam and the protests against Vietnam, you know, and Nixon's inauguration day, there was thousands of people descended in protest to the White House. They had to put a ring of buses, like wagons, around them to protect the president in the White House. You had serial killers, Son of Sam, you had Charles Manson in 69, the Zodiac Killer, Black Panthers, the weather underground, the weathermen, hundreds of bombs going off. So um, I, I just wish we could have shown more of that, you know? But did, we, did Peter write a more intimate script? Yes, he did. Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe, you know, if Ridley Scott had been directing it, it would have been a different script and it would have been bigger. Do you know what I mean? But. Um, but this is what Peter did, and I think he, he did an extraordinary job, you know. But I just wish for younger viewers that may go and see the film that there would have been a bigger painting so that kids, young people, could see what was at stake, you know. And, and the, the travails that the country was going through, you know. As I say, I'm from the north of Ireland. We were going through our shit at that time. But, uh, but you know, the images that were still coming through to living rooms from Vietnam was, you know, we were told one thing and we're seeing these images that were saying something else, you know. And I think uh, a huge cynicism got into the, the country to all of us at that time, and it's still there, still here, you know. I was just going to ask, you know, this, this is kind of a relevance, as, as, as crazy as it is, it's a relevant story today. Absolutely. So of course. what were your feelings about how, you know, journalism and how it's, you know, the, the what, I, what struck me about Mark the most is his principles. Yes. And yeah. I'm hoping there's people like Mark and the FBI now and even the CIA who are holding to their principles. Well, um, you know, there is the argument. Who's the guy that leaked all the information? He's, 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 he's in Russia at the minute. Oh, Snowden. Snowden, thank you. I just, I just dried on his name, you know. I mean, there's a classic, I mean, what, is he a traitor? Is he a hero? What, you know? Certainly the, the interviews I've seen with him in the past, it's like, it's a, there's a legitimate argument for both, you know? But, um, but he seems to have seriously thought, Snowden seems to have seriously thought, the public has to see what the government's doing. What, how we've been spied on and whatnot. So the freedom of the press is tantamount to any free society. They have to be able to do their job. And I'm not talking about gossip columnists and all that bullshit, you know, but the real issues, you know, and to hold our elected leaders accountable. Cooper? I, yeah, to kind of piggyback off of that, I think that Watergate has affected numerous generations ever since and um, how president's relationship with the, the public has definitely changed. Do you think that there is a particular lesson from this generation that younger people who weren't familiar with Watergate can take away from this film and how it applies to perhaps people in the To 
if anything, I would say just to you're a you're a citizen of the country. You have a right, and you have a right to protest. You know, uh, I'm not going to attack <clears throat> the Trump administration, but um, the guy has to be given his time, and his cabinet have to be given his time. But um, people are out protesting, especially women, which is great. It's great to see America protesting again. That doesn't seem to have happened for many, many years. And it's like, yes, get in there, get on the streets, you know, make your voice heard. You have a right to protest. And it's great, certainly with the women's movement, you know. We have one more question. Oh, there's Peter. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, speaking of protests, why do you think it's good for us to be protesting again? Because I think there's the potential of legitimate wrongs being committed. And uh, as one political analyst I saw a few weeks ago was asked, you know, outright, was there any collusion? Do you think there was collusion between Russia and the Trump administration in the early days? And uh, he said, well, let's put it this way. He said, there's, there's no smoke without fire, and there's a hell of a lot of smoke. <laughs> so... You know, we have to, um, these people have to be held accountable, you know. All righty, we are done. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. And you guys, we're going to have Peter, the director, come in. Yes, uh, there's a reason Mark Felt didn't reveal himself over the years. No, government always threatens whistleblowers with treason. Same thing with uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, with the Pentagon, Pentagon Papers. Uh -huh. um, so there are arguments out there saying that, yeah, right now it's Snowden and, and Chelsea Manning are seen as traitors, but decades from now they will be seen as heroes. Why are whistleblowers uh, seen as heroes decades later? And what does this movie say about whistleblowers? That's a fascinating question, um, and, and, a, and a, you got a couple hours. Um, have a glass of water. Um, you know, whistleblowers come in all different stripes. They're not all the same animal, right? Everybody's motivation is different. Um, you have Julian Assange on the one hand, who's a sociopath and a narcissist, and is really doing it to promote his own chaos. He's sowing chaos. Exactly what he's doing. He's just releasing information in a way that creates as much anarchic destabilization as possible. Everyone's different. Manning, Snowden, Felt. I mean, Felt was anonymous. And I don't know if you heard me say this, but to me, the, the, the true measure of philanthropy, for instance, is building a hospital and not putting your name on it. The true measure of being a whistleblower in the pure sense is to do it and stay anonymous because you're never making it about you, you're making it about the outcome. And that's what Felt was doing. He came out at the very end because he was old. He wanted his family to enjoy the legacy. He was going to be gone. Frankly, I think he thought the family could benefit from being connected to something so heroic and interesting. You know, history will treat each whistleblower differently. I don't know about Snowden. I don't know about Manning. I think it's too early to judge. Again, I feel like the information they let out was random and personally chosen. Whenever you're in the position of choosing, playing God like that, you're, you're creating circumstances that you can't really control. Felt didn't want any outcome except one. 
He just wanted the FBI to be able to continue the investigation and complete the investigation, and that was it. So in some ways, it's a very contained, um, modest goal. Does that answer your question? Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you. Um, kind of continuing on that, we were just talking about that afterwards, that, you know, basically, you know, every hero has flaws, and perhaps with him, I mean, he was, he did work for Hoover, who was like the master of like wiretapping and, you know, dirty tricks and everything yeah. else himself. So, I mean, he was a good company man for a long time. He got passed over for the highest job. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, you know, and you address that in the film that, you know, he's pissed off too because he didn't get the job that he was ultimately shooting for for 30 years. So. I think he was pissed off partly because that was a human being, mm -hmm. right? He's a, I mean, we all have ambition, but he was pissed off more because the selection of Pat Gray meant that Nixon had put the wolf in the hen house and, and left the FBI exposed to um, its corruptions. That's really why he was upset, and that's really why he did what he did. More than There's nothing in his character or his past or his history that suggests that he's vengeful to the point of taking down the president because he didn't get a job. That seems beyond petty. That's not Mark Felt. That's not who he was. That would be the act of, I don't even know if Julian Assange would be capable of that kind of pettiness. Maybe. Maybe anyway. um, that answer your question? Yeah, well, and what was it? Plus, I mean, you also showed that his wife was angry about that as well. So look, he, look, no one does anything for singular motivations. It's always a tapestry of things. His wife was driving him and driving him. His daughter was missing. The weather underground was bombing, killing people. The Munich massacre had also happened. He felt like there was a critical mass of chaos and danger. And he, I think he felt like if the FBI weren't protected, as an autonomous law enforcement organization, then all these things were in danger. I think I would say that, yeah. Fred, uh, this is your second movie where someone demands tell the truth. <laughs> Are you looking for stories like this and do you imagine a third one where uh, someone can say that and uh, mean it? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I mean, sometimes I feel like our narratives pick us. I personally have this feeling that writers have one story they tell. They just dress it up differently every time. <laughs> different clothes, different geographies. Um, you know, this has definitely been a through line in my body of work and it was true when I was a journalist also. Um, my next film is a World War II film. Um, it's after a different kind of truth. It's really the truth of survival um, and winning in a, in a, in a battle. Um, but it is true that Will's character and Liam's character and Concussion and Mark Felt definitely carry that kind of lone wolf whistleblower burden. And I think that's undeniable. Um, so I, I gather that All the President's Man was an was a, a influential movie for you. <laughs> is that correct? And is that one of the it's one of the great films of all time. I think it's influential on, to every filmmaker who's ever lived. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's a remarkable film. There are things that Pakula does in terms of just his framing, his shooting, Redford's performance, um, Jason Robard's performance. I, could watch that. I have watched that movie dozens and dozens of times. So of course, I mean, it was an influence, it was there, it was the elephant in the room, but um, you know, we really chose to make our own film and tell our own story. Um, I don't even think in necessarily dialogue with that film. You know, the garage scene is the uh, one overlap, but they're very different, you know? They're really from different sides of the looking glass. Um, I was so impressed that our hair looks freaky, kind of like a different from the Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great. Did you ask Liam that question? Did you ask Liam that question? You should have, because actually he likes talking about it. 
No, he likes talking about it because Mark felt, the real Mark felt, was obsessed with his hair. <laughs> he was. And it really, but I think it actually says something really interesting about him because he, his suits were immaculate, his hair was immaculate, a lot like this. And um, to me, what that said was, this is a man who wasn't just an FBI agent, but also wore the image of the FBI to a T, like Elliot Ness's FBI, you know, like from the Untouchables. He really believed in the ideology and the uniform and the look and, and how important that was. He believed the FBI needed to look contained and together and powerful and not just be powerful. Um, so Liam and I worked very hard on his hair, actually. Um, it, was a, it was a big, expensive, interesting um, topic of discussion for us. It was constant. The clothes were paid a lot of attention to. His suits were paid a lot of attention to. It's a, actually a very important question in the movie. Yeah. To kind of follow up on that, and Preston says that you deliberately didn't want to talk drama or a period piece and you don't like anything stagey right. and you wanted it really to give a feel of being contemporary and now. And I'm wondering, uh, to me there are two sides of that answer. One of them has to do with you wanted us to feel as if we are watching the moment now. And the other one is that um, it's not a very melodramatic film as it, as it could be. It, it plays pretty straight more like a docudrama, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, you had many opportunities to make it melodramatic, more so with the wife and with the daughter and with the weather underground and with other yeah. things happening, but, but you streamlined it along the process of this character. So how do you, which side of those am I closer to? No, I mean, you answered the question. I, I, hate, I hate melodrama. I don't like sentimentality. And I don't ever want to make a period movie. Even though two of my last three movies are, you know, one set in 1963, one in 73. But what I did was, in every meeting I had, I had my costume designer, production designer, and cinematographer around the table all at once every time. And the reason why is I never wanted anything to look fetishized. Like in Mad Men, you know, they would fetishize the phones and the clothes and the time and the, even the light fixtures. I wanted this to feel lived in. I wanted everything to feel peripheral. I didn't want anything to feel paid attention to necessarily. It just was. And the clothes especially, in fact, I drove my costume designer insane because I would make her go back and wash and rewash and rewash everything multiple times until it just felt lived in. And the same with the ties and the collars. And so it's all, you know, period and authentic, but it's never um, made a meal of. That's, uh, yeah. But I guess my question was, did you want us to feel that we were watching our situations? Oh, yeah. I mean, even the shooting style and the lighting and the, everything was about making it feel contemporary and present tense, not the past. Oh, for political? Aesthetic reasons. Aesthetic reasons. I just feel like if someone is experiencing something in the present tense, it's a more, the movie has a kind of a desperate, um, paranoid, compressed emotion to it, the, the rhythm of the cutting, even the cutting pattern. And I just wanted to feel like you could never catch your breath. So it's always happening now. Make sense? Hi, I love the cast. And I'm like, you know, it's an all-star cast. I'm especially happy to see Josh Lucas. Josh is great. I yeah. missed him. <laughs> so, yeah. How are you able to attract such a great you know, main cast like that? Um, I begged them. Um, <laughs> no, you know, um, all three of you know, I don't. Part of it is I don't really know how to answer your question because all three movies I've made recently. I've all had cast that deep, 
even in, I mean, I had Kate Walsh on that screen for 30 seconds. They all, I, my feeling is that really great veteran actors are very hungry to be part of stories that are worth telling and important to tell. There's not a lot of them. So when a movie like this comes around, they really want to do it, and they'll come in and do it for a song, and they'll, most of them come in for a few days or a few weeks, and then that's it. It's really, you know, the Liams and the Dianes who have to commit, Tony and Josh. Um, but I, I'm also very interested in actors who you might not expect in certain roles. I love that. I feel like they work harder, they deliver. Josh, I think, really over-delivered. I think he's remarkable, and I think partly because he doesn't always take these kinds of roles. Same with Tony Goldwyn. Um, really everybody in it. Brian Darcy James, Ike Barinholtz, it goes on and on. You know, Tom Sizemore. Um, Tom, is, you know, Tom is one of the great electric actors of any generation, and he came aboard for three days and crushed it. I mean, just wanted, just wanted everybody wants to work with Liam. Um, and uh, I, think that, I think that's why, yeah. But one of the things he laments is that there was more with Diane uh, that was shot that may later become uh, part of the home video yeah. package. Can you talk a little bit about what might, you might expect in that at some point? Of course. You know, um, there is a whole movie I could have cut that had that the A story would have been about the marriage and the daughter and Watergate and the FBI almost would have been the B story. I could have made that movie. I could have cut that movie. There's probably there are probably half a dozen scenes that didn't make it into the film. Diane is such an electric actress, and at the end of the day, the story we were telling was a story we were telling, and I had to keep reminding myself, and it was painful. But every director goes through that process. Um, mostly, the scenes that you will see on uh, the DVD. Um, or the download um, have to do with the marriage and the daughter. And Diane, I can't tell you how great she is. It, it was, uh, um, we all are heartbroken when we lose stuff that we, you know, I wrote it, I shot it, I edited it. Um, you're always brokenhearted, but at the end of the day, you have to make hard decisions. And, you know, Liam and I were in constant dialogue about that. And, um, and uh, I think at the end of the day, this is the best version of the movie to have edited together. Um, but there are, of course, other, you know, other angles, but it's all has to do, that marriage, you know, it's like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or Revolutionary Road? There's a, there's a, that marriage was a painful, combustible animal. And, you know, and Diane is one of the, our great actresses. She was incredible. Um, to follow up on kind of all of that, um, with the editing choice and everything, why was this the right version? Like, why do you feel that this was the best way because I think you knew what you were watching. I think at the end of the day, you were watching um, a political thriller that was a procedural, that was an inside look um, into the FBI and that world that I don't think anybody had ever seen before. The marriage, I mean, I just named two movies that I think were, you know, had a parallel storytelling structure about those kind of marriages. You know, you have a very still professional husband who's doing his job, this is in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you have a wife who's a bird in a cage, who, you know, uh, Audrey felt was brilliant and beautiful, probably bipolar. She was an alcoholic, she was drunk by 11 a.m., mostly because she, you know, she was underwhelmed and underachieved in her life, and I feel like we've heard that story before, and I wanted to tell a story that we just hadn't heard before. Yes, um, first of all, I was, throughout the screening, I was expecting, where's the fall of the money 
line. That was never said. The, that line was never said. You know that, right? That was the creation of William Goldman, who wrote the screenplay for. Exactly. Yeah. So my question is, um, <laughs> what's the key to making a, a rock solid political thriller so that you know it will be seen as left wing or right wing? Because people might see these movies like, oh, that's a liberal Hollywood depiction of you know Mark Felt. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's really simple, actually. It's not complicated. If you if you look through the keyhole of a person's individual's life, and everything you see is through the prism of his experience, his subjective experience, and it's nothing to do with ideology. It has to do with exist, you know, personal existence. And if you stay true to character, then politics is tertiary. It's not even secondary. Um, I don't care about politics. I don't care who people vote for. I think you know felt had um, a mission, and I think he had um, a strong loyalty to his wife and a desperation about his daughter. And at the end of the day, it's a story about a man, not an ideologue. So um, I never, I actually, do, I don't even pay attention to politics. And but there's a way to stay true. You stay true to the man or the woman if if it's about her, um, and not about the politics. Kind of rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? That title, yeah. just really smooth. Um, uh, we thought about a lot of titles. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> we have time for a couple more. Cooper, did you find because it's an investigation that lasted, you know, hundreds of days? Did you find it as filmmakers trying to focus on the key points, challenging to tap into them and explain them in a way that wasn't? Expositional, but still yeah. sense of the really hard. I mean, right? There's a lot of history to kind of tell without making it feel like history. It's really a challenge. Um, again, I'll go back to my earlier answer, which was as, as long as you stay within the bounds of a subjective man's journey, to me, the movie began and ended exactly where this film should have. It wasn't, this movie in the end wasn't about Nixon's resignation, it was about Mark Felt's journey to get there. So actually, once I looked through it, once I looked at the film through that window, the the length of time that the movie covers actually became very clear to me when it when it should end. The movie really ends with the risk rescue of his daughter, with the discovery of his daughter. The uh, the grand jury scene at the very end, which I love, um, was almost like a coda. It was almost like a, an afterthought. I know why. Another one just in. Man, can you believe it? I know, and he's so good. He's so great. Um, you know, you did a lot of research about, about Mark. What is the one thing that surprised you about the man himself? Mm. How, um, how emotional he was. You know, this is a guy who is a spy in his home life and a spy at work. But the truth is, and Liam played it perfectly, you know, if you, if you watch his performance, it was so modulated and so minimalistic. And then when he sees his daughter, he just breaks open, you know. And um, it broke my heart. You know, when I wrote that scene, um, where he discovered his daughter, found his daughter, I got very emotional myself. And um, I think it's because even when I was writing it, and then later when I was directing it, holding it and containing it, containing it, and then you finally get to reveal him as a parent and, uh, and who's in love with a child, and it's really that simple. And um, that's what surprised me the most when I discovered that. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Short question. I don't know if I missed this or not, but he only, um, in terms of the Woodward Bernstein thing, only Wood Woodward um, 
during the. Uh, he never met Bernstein. Had never met Bernstein, also. No, he never met Bernstein until just before he died. Yep. Yep. They really kept Bob kept him very apart. That's a whole other fascinating dynamic between those two. Yeah. Make a movie about Bob and Mark. Nah. <laughs> one more. Yeah. Um, you talked about the, the parking garage scene being the one overlap. I was just curious about your approach to that because obviously you know you have to do the scene. And sure. You don't want it to be sure. the same scene. So just what was your? It's a great question, and again, the only way to survive it as the writer and survive it as the filmmaker is to put the other film out of my mind, put Robert Redford out of my mind, Hal Holbrook, I mean, what is it, you know, it's like climbing Mount Rushmore, what are you gonna do? Um, so I thought about that scene as if it, as if it really happened, not the, because I did know that the screenwriting history of that scene was really like a fictionalization, you know, follow the money was Goldman's idea, which is a great idea. And this I felt was, an investigation of what it really might have been like, what actually really happened, which I find, to me personally, like equally fascinating, but for a completely different reason. I don't even think those scenes are in dialogue with each other, um, all the president's men in this one. I feel like they're almost two completely different movies. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. There you have it. Mark Felt, the man who brought down the White House. Uh, that is the film, which, uh, as you are listening to this, has already opened in L.A. and New York. And I'm sure it'll be opening in other cities soon. Definitely check it out. And uh, if you enjoyed this, if, if this is your first time checking out an interview on the site, definitely go to Hobo Trash Can. Go back through the archives. There's a lot more interviews. Uh, I did a similar thing to this format, sort of a press conference interview uh, last year with John Krasinski and character actress Margot Martindale for the film The Hollers. So you can check that out if you liked this. Uh, but also just, you know, a bunch of other interviews, some more one-on-one -on -one interviews. Some of the more recent ones were... Uh, Lauren Lapkus, or, uh, you know, I interviewed Olivia Sandoval from the most recent season of Fargo, talked to John O'Hurley from Seinfeld. So definitely, you know, go in the archives, check those out. There's a lot of good stuff there. And that's going to do it for me this week. So remember, kids, don't do drugs or you go to hell before you die.
Hobo Radio is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on iTunes. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hi, I'm John Bennett. And I'm Patrick Stork. And we are the hosts of Expert of Nothing. A live game show where we bring six contestants up to, to talk about a pre-selected topic. And also to flash a topic that they have no idea what it will be. A completely unscripted debate. By experts making it up right on the spot. It's sort of like a bar argument meets TED Talks. More facts than a Texas textbook. It's like the Mabel Memorial March Madness every month. You can get our podcast every two weeks on the Peak Sloth Network. You can get our live shows every month at the wind-up space. Alternative facts, we got them. We invented them.